morning. I pray that it is. And I pray that today we will just press into the word. Let me, let me just say today, you are without excuse. I have been up since 1.30 this morning. For some reason, I just could not go back to sleep. And I'm going to give everything I've got. So if I can do that, guess what? You can do that as well. And if you don't, you have no one to blame but yourself. And so we're going to press in today and see what the Lord does. But welcome to week eight of our Jesus in the Old Testament series. And as Brother Frank mentioned, Pastor Jordan did an amazing job last week taking us to uh, Joshua, Jesus as the commander of the army of the Lord, and the question being, are we on his side? And this morning we come to one of the most humbling and one of the most surprising pictures of Jesus in the Old Testament. And this picture is humbling because seeing Christ for who he is means we will see ourselves for who we are, and that is humbling. And this picture is surprising because when we come to this passage, most of us normally don't think Jesus. But after today, I pray that we will. And here's what we know. We live in a world where many people struggle with the existence of God. Does God exist? Or if God does exist, they wonder, can he be known? Others believe in him, and yet when the subject of an intimate relationship with him comes up, they're left silent. And there are a lot of people who say they have a relationship with God, yet at the same time they're confused as to why they don't seem to feel any emotion or any affection towards God. And all of these issues are addressed in us as God's people seeing him. Just seeing him for who he is, seeing the Holy One. And if ever there was a religious word, it's the word holy. You know, regardless of the context, most people probably hear the word holy and think cathedrals, think, if you're a Catholic or raised Catholic, excuse me, think rosary, some think saints, others stained glass, um, communion, maybe the cross or the sound of monks chanting. I don't know um, what comes to your mind, but the, the word holiness means different things to different people. Have you ever considered just how frequently sometimes we use the word holy? We say holy cow, holy moly, holy mackerel, holy Moses, holy Toledo, holy smoke, holy roller, just to name a few. Uh, and because of this, it should come as no surprise that many people are unimpressed when the Bible speaks of God is holy. The holiness of God is also probably one of the most unpopular and most neglected attributes because most of us would not, if we had a choice, would not choose to dwell on his holiness. There are other characteristics that are far more attractive to us. We'd rather think about his love or his grace or his mercy, his faithfulness that we just sang about, or his, his goodness or, or power. And all of those things are absolutely true, and we need to dwell on them. But of all the things God is called in Scripture, hear this, he is called holy the most. He's called holy the most. In the book of Isaiah alone, 30 times, the prophet refers to him as the holy one. Not the merciful one, not the compassionate one, not the faithful one, but the holy one. All told, the Bible uses the word holy 637 times. In Scripture, holiness is God's defining, central, and foundational 
attribute. In fact, R.C. Sproul, who wrote an amazing book, if you ever want to read a book on holiness, R.C. Sproul, The Holiness of God Will Blow Your Mind. But he says this, any attempt to understand God apart from holiness is idolatry. Let me say it again. Any attempt to understand God apart from holiness is idolatry. Meaning, when you and I think about God, if we don't think about his holiness, then we probably have created a God in our own image. And we need to repent of that immediately. So holiness is what makes God God and completely different from us, which is why holiness is the most difficult attribute for us to define. Here's the point this morning. Our view of God is everything. How we view him is everything. In fact, in Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, I'm just going to read it for you. But it says this, thus says the Lord. So that should get our attention. God is speaking. Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. So if you're the smartest person in the room, the Bible says, God says, don't boast in that. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. If you're the strongest person in the room, don't boast in that. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. Don't do it, but let him who boasts, boast in this. This is God speaking. Boast in this, that he understands and knows me. God says, if you're going to boast in anything, boast in the fact that you know me. That you understand me. I repeat, a right view of God is everything. Without it, you're left in confusion. And without it, you're left building your life on a sandy, faulty foundation. Have you and I, have you ever been given a glimpse of God and responded to him for who he is? If you haven't, then today is our day. For only when we put God in right perspective can we see ourselves for who we are and have a right perspective there and, and be brought into to focus. So let's walk through Isaiah's vision in Isaiah 6 and behold the holiness of our king. Behold Jesus as the Holy One. So if you're able, I'm going to ask you to stand as we read um, Isaiah 6, 1 through 7. I know some people ask me, you know, why do we stand when we read the Word of God? Here's why we stand, because in, in uh, Nehemiah chapter, I believe, 9, after years of not having the Bible, the Bible is read to the people, and they stand. They understand, you know, people don't complain about when you go to a wedding and the, the bride marches in, you stand up. If you were in the presence of a queen or anything else, and they walk in, you stand up. It's a picture of, of reverence, and if we're going to... If we're going to show reverence to a bride or to a queen or king or president, may we show even more reverence to God and his word. That's a separate sermon. Cost you nothing extra. Beginning at verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. With two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt 
is taken away, your sin atoned for. We'll stop there today. Let's pray. Father, we come before you, and Lord, help us today, Jesus, to see you as the Holy One and to respond rightly to your holiness. Oh, God, speak. Oh, God, speak. Show us today a right view of you and a right view of ourselves, and may we respond to you rightly. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. And you may be seated. So as we come to Isaiah 6, we're confronted with a national crisis in Judah. King Uzziah had reigned as the king in Judah for 52 years. He was one of the better kings who ruled over Judah. He was said to be a good king, a wise king for most of his career. He was a beloved king who sought the Lord, who did good. For many, he was the only king they had ever known, 52 years. Yet the story of Uzziah ends on a sad note. He is led by pride to bust into the the holy place of the, the temple. He is then struck with leprosy. He spends the last remaining years of his life in isolation. Yet when he died, it was still a time of national mourning. The people were asking, what will happen to us? Will the next king seek the Lord and lead us to him? And In the middle of all of the mourning, in the middle of the confusion, Isaiah went, most believed through a heavenly vision, to the temple, and he saw that although an earthly king had died, a heavenly king was alive and well. What Isaiah saw is there was a throne in heaven, and a heavenly king is on it. What Isaiah saw that although one king had lost his power, the true king never will. Although one king has seen his authority pass to the next generation, the heavenly king will rule from generation to generation to generation. What he saw is while an earthly nation mourns the passing of an earthly king, a heavenly host praises the eternal excellencies of their heavenly king. Uzziah's power was limited and fleeting, yet the king in heaven, his power is limitless and it lasts forever. The contrast is indescribable. We can't describe it, but here's the deal. We need to meditate upon it until it becomes undeniable. Until it becomes undeniable for us. And here's what I want you to to see. If we were to ask Isaiah, Isaiah, who did you see? Isaiah would have responded by saying, I saw Yahweh, I saw the Lord. In his mind, it would have been God the Father. Yet, when we look at John chapter 12, verse 41, in fact, we're going to put it on the screen just so you don't have to turn there unless you want to turn there. But John 12, 41, it says this. John writes these words, Isaiah saw these things pointing us back to Isaiah 6 because he saw his glory and spoke of him. So if you were to ask John, Who did Isaiah see? John would also say Yahweh, but yet he would be referring to him in his fullest revelation, which is he saw Jesus. That is who he saw. That is who he spoke of. So John tells us that Isaiah, in seeing the Lord on his throne, he sees King Jesus. Jesus is the glory of God. Jesus, our King, is set apart in heaven and on earth, and there is none like him. There are none who are his equal. There are none on earth who can be compared to him. Isaiah saw the Lord, and get this, he was on 
his throne. And what that tells us, don't miss this this morning, is that when the world seems dark around you, when our country seems to have lost its ever-loving mind, and it has, when confusion reigns on an earthly scale, when things are really terrible and they seem like they are out of control, our king is not panicked, he is not sweating, He is not wringing his hands. He is on the throne and he is ruling and he is reigning. This is the picture that we must see of him. So this morning we're going to unpack four truths concerning the Holy One, the King, on the throne, our Lord Jesus, and he is holy, holy, holy. Let me just say this from the beginning. I have way more information than we have time, but we're going to get to all of it today. So just buckle up and uh, let's, let's dive in. Truth, not, that didn't get an amen for any of you, but it doesn't matter. You can amen me or not. You're going to still sit there. So we're all good. So number one is this. Our king is other than us. Our king is other than us. The holiness of our king does not just point to the fact that he is without sin. It also means he is without equal. In verse 3, one seraphim called to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Whether you recognize it or not, the heavens are declaring the glory of its creator. But when it comes to the king, he is not just different from us as if he's the best of all of us elevated to another power. No, he is other than us. This is the picture that when Jesus comes from the scene in Matthew 8 and he calms the storm, the disciples say, what manner of person is this? Like, he's not from around these parts. Like, he's not one of us. He's other than us. He is holy, holy, holy. Some have taught that the ultimate reason or the, the picture of why there's three holies is they, they're pointing to the Trinity. And we would say, yes, the Father is holy, the Son is holy, the Holy Spirit is, is holy. Although the full reason here doesn't seem to be suggesting that. It seems to be reminding us that our King, in his essence, is holy. He's other than us. Everything he thinks, everything he does, everything he purposes, everything he is, is altogether consistently holy. And it is sad that this particular trait, especially in the church, his holiness in the church has been lost because we prefer to think of his compassion, his love, his mercy, his grace. And we should think about those things, but here's the deal. We like to think about those things because none of those are a threat to us. God's love isn't a threat to us. He's loving. Oh, he looks at us with little googly eyes, but his holiness is a threat to us. Why? Because we are unholy. And so it becomes a threat to us. But let me just say this. We ignore the holiness of God at our own peril. For the seraphim were not shouting, omnipotent, omnipotent, omnipotent is the Lord of hosts, even though Jesus is altogether all-powerful. They were not shouting, omniscient, omniscient, omniscient is the Lord of hosts, even though Jesus is all-knowing. They weren't even shouting, omnipresent, omnipresent, omnipresent is the Lord of hosts, even though Jesus said, I will never leave you or forsake you. When they saw the Lord, they said, holy, holy, holy. These words are crafted to take our minds where they don't normally go. These words are meant to blow our minds with the thought that our king is unlike us. 
They're meant to humble us with that realization. And this is the reason why we normally end up creating a God um, that we can um, accept, creating a God kind of in our own image. It's more palatable. It's more understandable. But the heart of Isaiah's vision here is that the king on the heavenly throne is altogether holy. In fact, he is holy, holy, holy. To say that he is holy once is enough. To say that he is holy twice is emphatic. To say that he is holy three times is a superlative. That is, he is so holy that our minds can't comprehend it, and he is so holy that our mouths can't even fully express it. Most scholars even believe that the the grouping of three holies together in succession is a sign of emphasis. It's a sign of super importance. It's a thing, it'd be the same as this, writing holy in all caps and then putting a hundred exclamation points behind it. And even that doesn't show us how holy he is. Only once in scripture is an attribute of God elevated to the third degree. As big as God's heart is, God is never called in Scripture holy, holy, or love, 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 excuse me. As sweet as his mercy is, he's never called mercy, mercy, mercy. As great as his faithfulness is, that we just think about, he's never called faithful, faithful, faithful. But it does say he is holy, holy, holy. Again, the title Holy One appears in the book of Isaiah 30 times. Isaiah never forgot who he was dealing with. Isaiah never forgot who he is. The question is, have we forgot? Have we forgot who he is? He is other than us. This is our king. But then secondly, our king is ever over us. So he's ever over us. Isaiah saw the heavenly throne room. And more importantly, he saw that there was a king sitting on the throne. In verse 1, he says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on the throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood seraphim. So Isaiah saw Jesus on the throne. There is a literal throne in heaven. Now this speaks of authority. It speaks of kingship for only kings sit on thrones. And our Lord Jesus, he is high. He is exalted. He is above all. There's an interesting fact that I came across this week. There are 47 mentions of the word throne in the New Testament, and 35 of them appear in the book of Revelation. Now, why is that interesting, or why is that important? And here is why. Because it's emphasizing that at the craziest time in human existence, during the time of Revelation and what it shows us, that God will still be on the throne. The craziest time of existence, the king will still be on his throne. See, the bottom line of atheism is that there is no throne and no one sits on it. The bottom line of humanism is there's a throne, but we sit on it and we control our own destinies and our own beings. But the Bible tells us, makes it very clear, there's a throne in heaven and we're not on it. There is a king who is on it. There's a throne and it is occupied. And it has always been occupied and it will always be occupied. And the aspect, this this aspect of, of holiness is not just who he is or, or what he does, it's the essence of who he is. If I were to ask, how is this king's holiness revealed? The answer would be, in everything he does. In everything Jesus did, his holiness was revealed so much so that Pilate said, I find no fault in him. Everything Jesus thought, everything he desired, everything he spoke, 
was utterly holy in every single way. He is holy in every attribute, in every action. He's holy in his justice, holy in his love, in his mercy, in his power. He is holy in wisdom and patience. He is even holy in his anger. He's holy in faithfulness and grace and compassion. He is even holy in his holiness. That's just how amazing he is. He is beyond the beyond. He is above the above. Again, this is really difficult because we like to shrink God down to our size. We like to we like the Build-A-Bear Jesus. We like to take Jesus and put all the attributes that we want and take all the attributes that we don't like out. But we must not and we cannot do that. In the end, our king is holy and that he is God. He is incomparable and we must come to him for who he is. And, and thinking about the one who is over us, we must begin by thinking rightly. If we look, look back at chapter 6, verses 1 and verse 3, the word Lord appears differently. And it's not an error. There are two different Hebrew words that are being used. In verse 3, it says, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. It's Yahweh. It's the name of God. Yahweh. He's a self-existent one. The Lord of hosts. But then in verse 3, it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, capital L, but then lowercase O-R-D, which is not Yahweh. It's Adonai. It's the title is who he is. He is Lord. He is King of Kings. He is Lord of Lords. So what Isaiah is trying to show us is this. The Lord, Yahweh, who is on the throne, is Lord, Adonai, of all. He is Lord of all. This king is above us. He's exalted over us. And he is worthy of something from us. You know what he's worthy of? Everything. He is worthy of our all. And although, let me just say this, although he is over us, praise God, our king has come near to us. Amen. He has come near. So our king is ever over us. Number three, our king puts terror within us. Our king puts terror within us. And this is the, the thing we don't like thinking about. But in verse five, Isaiah said, I said, woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And Isaiah's first response in seeing this, this amazing vision was not to say, wow, this is awesome. His first response wasn't to get out his cell phone and start taking selfies um, of all this. No, his first response is, woe is me, for I am undone. Meaning, Woe is me because I'm, I'm about to die. I'm about to die in the presence of God. Woe is me. The Bible is clear. Please hear this. The Bible is clear that our biggest problem is not that we feel guilty. Our biggest problem is that we are guilty. Our, it's not that we have a low view of ourselves. Our problem is that we have too low a view of God. We have too low a view of him. One author has said this. You don't impress the officials at NASA with a paper airplane. And you don't boast about your crayon sketches in the presence of Picasso. Our pride speaks to the truth that we don't live in the presence of the king. For when you see him, all pride disappears. And this is what we see in Isaiah. All pride was gone. When God goes public with his glory, an imbalance occurs between him and us. We see him and then we see ourselves. It's like Niagara Falls introducing itself to the leak in your kitchen sink. It's like Mount Everest 
making itself known to the concrete in your driveway. It's like the Sahara Desert in its fullness visiting the dust underneath your living room couch. Despite the incalculable difference here, this is how God relates to all of us when he reveals himself to us. And his holiness is terrifying. And you might be thinking, well, that's the God of the Old Testament. That's not, that's not Jesus. Well, this week we read in Luke 5. And in Luke 5, Jesus takes Peter out in the boat and says, let down your nets. And Peter said, we've done that all night and we got nothing. But because you say so, I'll do it. He does it and there's fish everywhere. And it tells us this, that Peter fell down and says, depart from me, for I'm a sinner. Meaning, he was fearful in the presence of Jesus in the same way that Isaiah was fearful here in this moment. What we see in this picture, the angels have their faces covered. The pillars of the temple are shaking in his presence. Isaiah is saying, woe is me. I've always loved the story of Frederick the Great, who toured a Berlin prison. He was the king of Prussia at the time, and he went through a prison and in the cells were, were inmates. And as he appeared in his robe as the king, all of the inmates declared their innocence. I was framed. I'm innocent. I didn't do it. Every single one of them except for one. There was one guy in a cell who did not stand up, who kept his head down and didn't say anything. The king stopped in front of his cell and said, I suppose you're going to tell me you're innocent as well. The man shook his head and said, no, your majesty, I am not innocent. I am guilty and I deserve my punishment. Well, this surprised Frederick. He stood up and then he made this proclamation. Release this guilty rascal before he corrupts all these fine, innocent people. You, you see, what, what got this man out of jail? And the answer is his admission that he should be there. His admission that he should be there. When was the last time you confessed before God your sin? When was the last time you confessed before God in his presence that you have missed the mark and fallen short of his glory? You see, we are creatures of comparison, and every time we're guilt hits us, what we do is we go, well, I'm not as bad as Kenny. I'm not as bad as Kenny. So I, I must be pretty good. And then Kenny says, I'm not as bad as Frank. I mean, so it just, it continues to, to go. There's this circle that continually happens. And we compare ourselves to other people or we say, I'm not as bad as Hitler. Therefore, I must be good. Or we think this way. We say, well, if everybody's failed the test, then God has to curve it. God has to change his standards, but God will not change his standards. And see, here's what I want you to see, that an encounter with holiness is always a traumatic experience. Think about the seraphims. The seraphims are called burning ones. They're, they're burning yet not consumed in the presence of God. But these, these seraphims, they're not fallen angels, meaning they've never sinned. They're holy, meaning they, they are without sin, Yet it becomes obvious that even these holy creatures are not equal to the king. For even they must shield their faces and their feet. And when we're told that they have faces and feet, it's a sign that they are creatures just like us. Therefore, even though they have never sinned, they are kept in their rightful place by the Holy One. Several years ago, many years ago, a survey of ex-church members 
revealed that the main reason that many stopped attending church was they found church attendance to be boring. And it's difficult for, for many going to church that they, it's boring, I don't want to be there anymore. So churches counteracted that survey by saying we're going to make church as entertaining as possible. Yet the failure here is that they made church about man and not about God. I know some of you are sitting here going, yeah, that's why I don't like the second service. That's exactly what they're about. But if you have somebody up here with a banjo playing Southern Gospel, you guys be clapping and enjoying yourself just as much. Here's the deal. We are self-seeking in what we desire. That got, that got one uh-huh. The rest of you, you're guilty, and you know you are. Here's what we do. We come to church, and we act like we're the judge. Well, I didn't like the music today. Micah did not give anything that was uh, relevant to my life, and he preached way too long. Nobody spoke to me. It was too cold. It was too hot. We make ourselves the judge, and we wonder why we don't get anything. Let me tell you why. Because you're not the judge. You're not the judge. And let me say very clearly today, the goal of what we're doing this morning is not about you. It's about him. And it will forever be about him. And if you walk in here thinking it's about you, I'm going to tick you off every Sunday because it's not about you. It's not about you. It will never be about you. If, if I try to make this whole thing about you, guess what? I could give you, many people I could say, pick everything, the service from 930 all the way to 1045. We do it exactly your way and you still go, I didn't like it. It's just the picture of who we are. Therefore, let me give you a different alternative. Make it about him. Because he will always be worthy. He will always be worthy of all of our praise. We want to see him. We want to hear him. We want to respond to him. Just think about it. The thresholds of the temple shook in his presence. Do we, do we shake in his presence? We're called the temple of the Holy Spirit. When was the last time we shook in his presence? If inanimate objects understand who he is, then why can't we? Listen, there, there can't be, when we understand who he is, when we have an encounter with him, there can't be even the smallest sense of coldness or indifference when we come to a place like this. Because we're here for him. And we understand who he, he is. Let me just, before we move on to the next, our last truth, I want to just pause here. Because I think there's a, a moment here when we think about his holiness, putting terror within us, Isaiah seeing him, I'm sinful. Peter seeing him, I'm sinful. John in the book of Revelation seeing him falling on his face as though dead. Again, our problem is not that we have too high a view of ourselves. It's that we have too low a view of him. Right. And I just want to pause in this moment. I, was, I just want to pray. And I just want to ask God to forgive us for thoughts about him that aren't worthy of him. So let's pray. Just pray with me. And if God brings things into your mind to confess, do that in this moment. Father, have mercy on us. God, we have sinned. Lord, we, we have sinned and fallen short of your glory. God, you are holy, holy, holy. Holy, all caps, 100 exclamation points. And Father, we are sinful, sinful, sinful. God, it's who we are. Yet, God, you are forgiving, forgiving, forgiving. 
Lord, we thank you that if we confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. God, forgive us for how we have failed you. God, forgive us for doing the things your word tells us not to do. Forgive us, Lord, for not doing the things your word commands us to do. Forgive us, God, for exalting ourselves over you. Forgive us for thoughts concerning you that aren't worthy of you. Lord, forgive us. Forgive us. Forgive us. Lord, we are sinners. And we need your forgiveness. We need that relationship restored. We need you to restore to us the joy of our salvation. And we don't need that restoration just once a year. We need it every day. Restore to us the joy of your salvation. Forgive us, oh God. Have mercy upon us. In Jesus' name, amen. Which leads us to last truth, which is this. Our king gives comfort to us. Our king gives comfort to us. And the reason he gives comfort to us is because it points us to salvation. On the screen, you see Psalm 98, 1 and 2 that says, The Lord has done marvelous things. His right hand, his holy arm have worked salvation. The Lord has made known his salvation. Here's the deal. The doctrine of His holiness sits at the center of the grand narrative of the gospel, meaning every situation or terrible circumstance that you have been in or that you are now in or that you will be in is under the careful sovereignty of the one who is completely holy. It might not always seem this way, but he is ruling. And sometimes he is overruling. What he does is always right. Remind yourself, his holiness doesn't just mean he's without sin. It doesn't just mean he's without equal. It also means he can't ever do wrong. He can't ever do wrong. So everything he does is right. What he says is true. His promises will always be delivered. Preach this message to yourself over and over and over again. Evil is not in control. Injustice is not in control. Corruption is not in control. Satan is not in control. Our king is on his throne and he is in control. And he will forever be in control. He has always been worthy of our trust. For this reason, he is holy. And our holy king is also a gracious king. So where does this discussion of his holiness leads us? Where does it lead us? It leads us to celebrate his grace. Look back at verse 7 of chapter 6, Isaiah. It says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me. He flew to me. He touched my mouth. Isaiah had just said, I'm a man of unclean lips. Touched my mouth. And said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. Before we celebrate the grace of our king, I want us to highlight the pain of forgiveness. Because one of the strangest things about this passage is the angel's response to Isaiah's confession. Isaiah, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. The angel comes and touches his lips. He touches the very point of his confession. So 
Isaiah said, I'm a man of unclean lips. The angel didn't come and touch his feet. Didn't come and touch his back. Touched his lips with a flaming coal searing his lips. What a painful moment that must have been. Yet it's the angel who inflicts this pain. But in doing so, removing Isaiah's sin. In C.S. Lewis's book, The Great Divorce, he tells of a man with a lizard on his shoulder. The lizard symbolizes the man's lust. And though he desired freedom from it, he did not have the strength to kill it himself. A long scene ensued where a burning one appeared to this man and offered to kill the lizard. The man made every excuse he could possibly make. Then finally he relented and the angel struck. And Lewis writes these words. The next moment, the man gave a scream of agony such as I have never heard on earth. The burning one closed his crimson grip on the reptile, twisted the lizard while it bit and writhed, and then flung it, broken-backed, on the turf. The man turned from it, flung himself at the feet of the burning one, and embraced those feet. When he arose, I thought his face shone with tears, but it may have been only the liquid love and brightness which flowed from him. Listen, the pain of dealing with sin is excruciating, but it won't last. It won't last. Even more importantly, as we see in this story, it changes him. And when we allow God to do what he wants to do, it will change us. But what does this mean for us? At some point or another, our cleansing will hurt. But may we never forget that our cleansing hurt Jesus first. Because he died for our forgiveness. Back to grace now. Because of his grace, we are accepted and not rejected by him. Because of his grace, we become aware of the gravity of the sin that infects us all. Because of his grace, we run to him for help instead of running away from him in fear. Because of his grace, God appointed his son to be the perfect savior and the perfect sacrifice for us and imperfect people. Because of his grace operating within us, we experience both, both the conviction of guilt and sin as well as the desire and strength to live holy lives. Because of his grace, we have been invited to live in his presence forever and ever. Listen, his holiness decimates our self-sufficiency and it drives us to the Savior. It drives us to our King who is alone, who is able in his life and in his death to unite an unholy people, that's us, with a holy God. Listen, our heavenly king reveals to us his holiness, not as a warning that we should run from him in eternal terror, but as an invitation that we should run to him where weak and failing sinners always find grace in him that lasts forever. This is what Isaiah found, and brothers and sisters, this is what we will find. If you come to him, If you run to him, you will find grace in him that lasts forever. Do you see him today? Do you see him as the Holy One, as holy, holy, holy? Do you see yourself today for who you are?
And do you see, again, the amazing bridge, the amazing gulf that Jesus, with his wide open arms, from one side to us, to heaven, and he is the way, he is the truth, he is our life, and he is holy, holy, holy. May we never forget who he is. As Isaiah never forgot who he is dealing with, may we never forget who it is that who saved us and who it is that we are dealing with ourselves. If you can go ahead and stand this morning. We're going to call the musicians forward as we enter in this time of invitation and consecration. And let us pray. Father, we, we just rejoice in you today. We just declare Jesus. We declare Father God, we declare, Holy Spirit, that you are all holy, holy, holy. But Jesus, we thank you for this amazing picture that you, there's a throne in heaven, Lord, and you are on it. And the most difficult parts of, of life, the most difficult parts of history, Lord, you have not stepped off your throne, but you are still on your throne. You are ruling, you are overruling, you are reigning. You are holy, holy, holy. You are without sin. You are without equal. You can't do wrong. Help us to trust you, but help us also, Lord, to see ourselves for who we are. Lord, it's easy to have a high view of ourselves when we stay away from your presence. But when we draw in, Lord, we see you, we see us. But you don't leave us there. You offer forgiveness. You offer joy. This is strength to us. You offer grace. This abundant in every weakness. Help us to continually come to you. And Lord, remind us today, remind us every day that it is not about us. Oh God, it is forever about you. And we pray these things in your awesome, precious, and holy name. Amen.